This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world. Built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold right here at the Dusty Gold Standard on pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone is doing fantastic this evening. It's Friday evening going into Saturday morning, ladies and gentlemen. So big news, big news. We have a special guest lined up for January 4th, folks, January 4th. We are going to be interviewing the healing doc. All right. The healing doc on Twitter. He's at coach Saji, S-A-D-J-I. And so this gentleman has been tweeting an awful lot, ladies and gentlemen, about vaccines, about natural medicine. And so he's going to come on and we're going to have a conversation about natural medicine uh, versus um uh, natural medicine versus allopathic medicine. We're going to talk about vaccines in general. We're going to talk about viruses. We've got to be very careful. We might get into some terrain theory versus germ theory, but I've got to be careful because you can be censored for that kind of stuff. He is going to talk about how the big pharma industry controls doctors. So it's going to be a really good conversation. I've been following him uh, for the past couple of weeks and then i decided to reach out to him 
and see if he would be willing to come on the show because I liked what he was saying. I liked some of the tweets. Uh, over here, I'm at his website if you want to just check him out. It's uh, Coach Saji, S-A-D-J-I.com. And there's all different stuff on there, how he can help you shop uh, his books, shop products he uses. You can join his Telegram, his Facebook, his Instagram and you can support his work. So we're going to have an in-depth conversation. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, ladies and gentlemen. That'll be taking place on January 4th. Also, we have several other guests from the pain.tv slash gold community that are going to be coming on. I'm going to reach out to everyone this weekend and talk to them and set up a basic outline of what we're going to be discussing. I've got Farmer Carol lined up. I've got our doula Alyssa ready to go. And then I believe Grace from the midwifery that we use is going to come on the show as well. So lots of guests coming on. I'm trying to get Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Payne podcast on Fridays, to come on with the Healing Doc and co-host that interview. Because I think that will be a lot of fun. That's one of the things that Maria's been studying for many years. She used to run a Facebook page on all the holistic doctors that were being killed, you know, mysteriously dying. So I think she would be great to bring on. I know today she sent me a picture and she just baked her first loaf of bread off of that recipe I gave out on the show. Now I'm on my seventh or eighth loaf of bread. I pretty much got this thing down to a science at this point. It is a science and I've been tweaking the recipe and the cook times and everything. It's really good. So what I'll probably do, not like you can't find other people doing it online, but maybe I'll make a little video of me making a loaf of bread and I'll put it up over at pain.tv slash gold and maybe out on Twitter and you guys can try making it. Super simple folks and it's a lot of fun it's gratifying my wife just made me a sandwich for lunch with some mortadella and some muffaletto spread that we got at costco we used to chop up olives and make it ourselves, but we got lazy so we bought one at costco it's an organic muffaletta spread and uh, i mean as, as organic as the store is going to sell but uh it was quite delicious folks quite delicious so anyway lots of guests coming up all right what we're going to do today folks in episode 108 is we're going to get into the international monetary fund central bank digital currency discussion which took place on october 14 2022 so just a couple of months ago we're going to get into that but first i want to break down for you quickly the international monetary fund the world bank and the bank for international settlements i just want to show you what they are for those of you that don't know maybe you're just jumping into this show maybe you've been been listening to me but i haven't actually explained that so let me show you who these three players are to begin with and how they work together and the fact that they're all on board for pushing the central bank digital currency and this is all very important uh, as you know uh, because this is the basis for the payment system and the financial slavery that goes along with this worldwide technocracy that these folks are working to cement into place now i've said we are basically a quasi technocracy already we are a technocracy with the illusion with the illusion of a representative government all right we've said that on this show i stand by that so i believe we already are a technocracy this just will fully cement the technocracy into place and will fulfill 
the very tenet of technocracy, which is the systematic control of the means of production and the distribution of goods and services. Because once these guys control the payment system, all right, once they control what you can buy, what you can sell, when you can buy, who you can buy from, when you could buy gasoline, when you could charge your electric car, uh, who you can pick up vegetables from and meat from and everything else. Once they have a complete and total lockdown on that system, they effectively control the means of production and the distribution of goods and services. Obviously, the distribution of goods and services, because if you can't buy a loaf of bread, then you're limited to how much bread you can have, right? Then that is the control of the distribution of goods and services through the monetary system. They don't necessarily have to control the entire supply chain if they can control the money that has to change hands in order for goods and services to be sold. All right, are you understanding that? Okay, so they don't necessarily have to control the grocery store down the street from you if they can regulate your ability to buy things from that grocery store or that grocery store's ability to buy things from the wholesaler or the wholesaler's ability to purchase things from the manufacturer or the manufacturer's ability to purchase things from the farmers or the farmer's ability to purchase natural resources like like fuel and things like, uh, let's say, certain fertilizers and such. So they can control the entire supply chain through the monetary system. At the same time, I think it's pretty clear that these guys are trying to consolidate and monopolize all the pieces of the supply chain. That's another major component of this. That's Amazon, you know, the company that we buy things from that controls a huge uh, portion of the retail sector. That is consolidation of the uh, supply chain, the retail supply chain, and then also the manufacturers, the wholesalers, the distributors that sell everything through the Amazon network. As I've said on this show before, the technocrats are boxing everyone in from all walks of life. They're driving service workers into the gig industry that they control. They're driving creatives underneath companies like Fiverr.com and Etsy, the rental business under Airbnb, the taxi services under Uber and Lyft, all the same technocrats behind these companies. You know, the content creators have to go to YouTube or Rumble or BitChute or Odyssey or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you know, they're all being driven under the hands of the technocrats. It's a technological system, and you rely on making your money inside of that technological system. If you're some sort of an entrepreneur, you don't go to work every week and get a paycheck every week or every two weeks or whatever your deal is with your employer, you know, entrepreneurs mainly have to rely on the technocracy at this point in order to be able to generate and make income. Right, And if you have your own payment processor, whether you're a consultant or a graphic designer or a landscaper or anything in between, you have to have Square or Venmo or Apple Pay or Google Wallet or Stripe or one of these payment processors. Again, all the same te technocrats behind those companies. So they have the ability to cut off your ability to process a card or be able to get a transferred payment uh, made to you by a customer and if we think that that is if that is a system of total control wait until the central bank digital currencies come into play that's why honestly 
this was not an area that really interested me for many years. I knew about it. I knew it was a scam. I knew it was coming. But I don't really like talking about crypto and UBI and that kind of stuff. I like talking about the mad scientists, the Frankenstein doctors, transhumanism, uh, history of this stuff. But I decided, and the reason why I spent the last 10 episodes on CBDC and UBI is because now I see it as a major threat. Okay, and it's being moved from the top down. It's coming out of the IMF, the BIS, and the world banks, and then all the central banks around the world. And they are moving at light speed, and now that we know that the commercial banks are willing to play ball, it's just one big giant system. There might be a little pushback, a little resistance, but that's just to decide who gets a seat at the table and how big of a slice of this pie they're going to get. It's the same thing we see with Russia and China and the United States all agreeing on moving forward with central bank digital currency. They just seem to be battling over who's going to have more power, who's going to have a bigger seat at the table. The same thing we see happen with Republicans and Democrats, right? At the end of the day, the country moves in one direction. It moves towards being a hellhole. But if the Republicans are in power and the Democrats are not, the Republicans get a little bigger slice of the pie. They get to take home more of a kickback, a greater kickback than the Democrats and vice versa. And that's pretty much how this whole system works. So that's why we're getting into this. Now, I've been texting back and forth on a chain with Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays and Wide Awake Jim. If you haven't had a chance, check out episode 80 and 88 with Wide Awake Jim to learn about the climate change hustle that we got into in depth. We put together six hours of material on that, including charts and graphs and PDFs, everything that Jim brought to the table. Those are available at pain.tv slash gold. You can watch those, the ad-free video version with all the charts and the graphs. And then I also had the Young Bucks over at the Thomas Paine podcast and pain.tv slash gold put up all the source material that Jim provided. So those are included with the post over there. So you just look up episodes 80 and 88, and you'll be able to see that. So Jim's going to come back on this show with the research he's been doing. We're going to combine our research and then be able to paint a much broader picture, a much grander picture, much fuller picture for you of where this is at. Now, even last night when I was texting with Jim, he is still of the belief that this system, CBDC, won't be rolled out until all 190 uh, countries. It's 190 countries, I looked it up, are on board, and all their systems are working, they're interoperable. But I think as we've seen so far, uh, when we reviewed the World Economic Forum panel discussion on central bank digital currency yesterday in episode 107, and then the tail end of episode 106, these guys don't seem to be that concerned about getting everyone on board because there's various phases in this. It's not like they need 190 countries on board. CBDC comes into play and then all other money and other forms of payment are out the window. They can get CBDC working in the United States or in the Eurozone or in certain uh, Asian blocks. And then those can still be spent in a way cross border because they can use you know frictionless payment systems and you know real time converters and all this kind of stuff. So I think it's just slow rolled 
as we saw Frank Francois from the Bank of France, the head of the Central Bank in France and also chair of Bank for International Settlements, say that um, they're going to just keep rolling forward with this and that Euro, uh, the E-Euro, the European Zones version of the Central Bank Digital Currency, will be ready by 2026, 2027. And he said, get ready, look out uh, for the... Uh, retail side of that so the consumer side of that so again i think these guys are moving forward now it's 2022 so let's say 2027 that's five years and he said we're going to see a lot of moves within five years look covid land the high school theater production kicked off almost three years ago look how fast time flies so five years is a short window Uh, And obviously with inflation and all this other pain that they're inflicting on us, all this orchestrated pain, strategic pain, uh, trying to drive us into this, prime us for this, that's what I think is actually happening. Uh, making it more difficult for us to make moves, be able to save more money, be able to move things around and get ourselves out and break away from this system before it's fully in place but right now i would say if we have a two three four five year window that's a lot of time to make your moves that's a good thing now we'll know more as we combine our research with wide awake jim and eventually bringing maria albanese into this discussion as well because she's been doing some of her own research on these uh topics but i would say a two to five year window before a full rollout of cbdc gives you time to uh, make your moves and so i mean look i'm just gonna i'll tell you about it actually when we come back from the break folks we'll break some bread here when we get back from the break i'll be right back it's dust to go with the dust to gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dust and gold standard on pain.tv Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so this is what I'm talking about, right? So I'm playing around with making this bread, and I'm at the very beginning stages of this. I started out with a recipe that my mother had given me that she perfected. She makes all kinds of bread, but this was a no-need bread. She said, this is the place to start. So I'm eight loaves in, right? I'm not a, a professional here, but I've got, I've got it down to a science. I've been starting to play with the flavors, some of the cooking times. And so what I'm going to do over the next uh, couple of months, I'm going to keep messing around with this. I started yesterday a sourdough starter because I want to start working on some other kinds of bread. And uh, once you get the sourdough starter going, then you don't need yeast because my recipe, I need active dry yeast, right? So that is one product, let's say, eventually, if I can't buy that from a store, if they stop selling it, if the supply chain removes it, if I can't use CBDC to get it. So I'm trying to remove some of the ingredients that I am going to need to buy from a store. And one of them is yeast, right? So if I have sourdough starter, 
then I never have to have yeast. And I'll eventually get more into this in future shows on solutions. I'm not going to talk all about this tonight. But so there we go. I'm starting to look at ingredients that I need to be able to, uh, that I'm able to remove from the equation. And I could go buy a ton of yeast right now, but even if you put it in the freezer, it's only going to last you one to two years, right? And then the other one is bread flour. Now you can make it with all-purpose flour. Bread flour works the best. So I'm sitting here saying, okay, I got to do research into bread flour. How can I store it? If I buy a piece of land up in West Virginia, can I build some kind of a cellar that I keep this stuff in? Is there a way to keep moisture out of there? How long will it last? Can I make my own flour? What's the process? So I'm trying to figure out right how to do that otherwise all you need is salt and then you need water right so water salt yeast or sourdough starter and then flour that's the basis everything else is if you want to add cheeses and spices and other things of that nature and then you've got your cast iron dutch oven so i've got a couple of dutch ovens one is enameled one is cast iron and i'm going to start looking for on facebook marketplace more cast iron dutch ovens and you need the dutch oven really because it allows the dough to steam inside there uh, and that's what ends up helping the bread bake and then also uh, you end up forming the crust inside there anyway so what i want to be doing within a couple of months from now is figuring out how to bake this bread uh, using fire or some kind of an outdoor oven i'm going to build that uses fire so i don't have to use a gas or electric oven right so that's kind of my next step the reason why i'm doing this is because although i don't want to live off of bread if i had to live off of bread at least i can bake bread right so i could live let's say completely off the grid which is probably not in my future plans but let's say i was living completely off the grid up in uh somewhere in west virginia and i was able to bake this bread completely off the grid now i'm not like some kind of a prepper i've watched a lot of documentaries and youtube channels and stuff over the years on this stuff i i just want to be able to do this for you know a limited you know in a limited fashion i call it half amish and so i'm going to learn how to do this and i'm going to learn how to bake bread completely without electricity and then i'm going to start to figure out this flour issue and now all of a sudden a year two years from now if i can get a piece of land up in west virginia and i have the ability to build some kind of a fruit cellar and store flour down there i know i can at least make bread now i can use bread to barter with neighbors i can use bread to feed my family i can use bread uh you know maybe people would be able to buy it from me with cbdc or if we were trading with something else at that point so bread is a good thing to learn how to make because people can eat it to survive you can use it to barter if you know how to make bread you have all the ability to make something that tastes good at a time when uh things are crap and people are eating all this government distributed nonsense you know maybe they let you live in the half amish community because you're the bread maker you bring value so bread is something i'm looking at right my father-in-law makes whiskey all right so i'm uh next time i go over to poland i'm going to learn more about that and i'm going to try to perfect this art of whiskey now i want to be able to do it without some of the fancy equipment that he has that plugs in and then it creates you know this hot water that then steams 
the mesh and it goes up into a cold water pipe and i want to try to take that and then boil it back down into simple terms with no electricity right so i'm trying to learn these skills that would make me a value inside of a half amish community system all right and so lancaster pennsylvania is not far from here and several of our midwives from the team had actually trained with the amish they have inroads to the amish so if we're still in and around this area in a few years i'm going to take willie g up there hopefully be able to strike a deal to intern with some of the amish learn how to churn butter and stuff like that i'm really going to learn all these skills that i can use if i decide to live in a half amish fashion so bread is one uh i'm going to also learn from my father-in-law about some of the polish smoked sausages salted meats and then whiskey now if i could do all that stuff now i have a skill uh, that can be utilized off the grid. It's an outside of the matrix skill because I could build websites. I could do graphic design. I can take photographs. I can edit in Photoshop. I could produce corporate events. I could write comedy material. I could do all these things that are completely unnecessary and unneeded if you're going to live in a half Amish style community. Now, what I see the future as probably for my son for your kids your grandkids is learning everything from that from survival uh, for being able to make bread and go hunting and field dress a deer to being able to computer program because that gives them the ability to live one foot in the system and one foot out of the system or if it gets to a point where they're not going to let you live one foot outside the system and you decide you want to continue your life here on earth and you have to live inside the system you need to understand both set of skills both worlds all right it's like living in two completely different cultures but if you understand the both if you know both of those languages you know the tech world and the natural world then you can survive in the coming world all right so that's what i'm working on uh for myself at the moment starting to develop some skills that i can bring with me into a half amish style life all right and i suggest you do that i think it's very important start to look up some things i don't know old school blacksmithing gunsmithing uh, maybe carpentry old school carpentry you know these type of skills that you could bring with you uh if you decided to step outside of the matrix folks because if the cbdc system comes into play and everyone is completely uh, locked down in that system and you can only buy and sell what the system allows you to buy and sell then you're gonna have to have some other skills that you can use outside of the system to barter with like-minded folks i mean eventually if it gets really bad, if it gets to the point where you really need to escape the technocracy, if it gets to the point where there's robots in the streets and stuff, and we're all escaping, eventually people like you and me will find each other. We're all going to eventually flock to the same area. Whether we do this in an organized fashion over the next few years, or it becomes something where we just start fleeing and running up into the mountains, we're eventually all going to find each other. If everything becomes the hell that the these folks want to bring here on earth we will eventually find each other and you could come over to my mud hut folks because i will be making bread <laughs> and whiskey all right and salted meats that'll be uh 
That will be my contribution to the half Amish commune. <laughs> All right, folks. That's why I'm doing this. All right, let's take a look. Enough of that chit-chat. But no, I mean, you want to talk about solutions. I'm talking about realistic solutions. Uh, you have to plan for the worst. All right? Hope for the best. Plan for the worst. Be realistic. Uh, there's nothing that is stopping this movement to bring the technocracy. All right, let's take a look at Bank for International Settlements. All right, this is over at BIS.org. And so we just have the About page up. And it says here, our mission is to support central banks' pursuit of monetary and financial stability through international cooperation and to act as a bank for central banks. All right, it says uh, to deliver on our mission and be able to respond to the evolving nature of our business our work is anchored in strong core values that shape the way in which we work these values are the shared principles and beliefs that unite our staff and guide our actions to promote a cohesive purpose-driven culture to support central banks through their current and future challenges One, we deliver value through excellence in performance. Two, we are committed to continuous improvement and innovation. Three, we act with integrity. And four, we foster a culture of diversity, inclusion, sustainability, and social responsibility and so then it gets a little bit into the history here Uh, established in 1930 the bank for international settlements is owned by 63 central banks representing countries from around the world that together account for about 95 percent of world gross domestic product gdp its head office is in Basel, Switzerland, and it has two representative offices in Hong Kong, SAR, and in Mexico City, as well as innovation hub centers around the world. And so, just so we have a complete understanding here, I'm over at BIS.org, and this again is under the About section, but I'm looking at history. It says, established in 1930, the Bank for International Settlements is the oldest international financial institution. From its inception to the present day, the BIS has played a number of key roles in the global economy, from settling reparation payments imposed on Germany following the First World War, to serving central banks and their pursuit of monetary and fiscal stability on may 17th 2020 the bank for international settlements marked 90 years since it first opened its doors for business the book promoting global monetary and financial stability the bank for international settlements after Bretton woods uh, reviews the bank's role and contributions over the past 50 years the timeline outlines bis's history and folks we're just going to take a look at this uh right when we get back for the break i'm going to show you bank for international settlements world bank and imf and just show you how they all play together because as we're continuing to now talk about this and we're going to bring wide awake jim into the conversation and he's going to talk about bank for international settlements 
I just want you to have an understanding of who these groups are. I know you hear them, you see them hashtagged on social media, you hear other podcasters talk about them, but instead of looking at them as just boogeyman, I want you to understand what they actually are. Because I don't want you to think about World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all these groups as boogeyman. They're real people and real organizations that are out there right in front of us. The stuff they're doing is dangerous. It all leads to complete and total control. The building of a slave state but there's no reason to just hear these terms and think of a skull and crossbones try to understand what they are and then you'll know what their purpose is and then we'll say okay well this isn't conspiracy theory these are not boogeymen they are people right out there in the open that are trying to build a system of complete and total control and now we understand who they are what their objectives are and how exactly they plan on doing this all right folks i'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. On pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's take a look at this quickly. Bank for International Settlements, BIS.org. It says, BIS Foundation in Crisis, 1930 to 1939. The Bank for International Settlements was created in 1930 at the Hague Conference, a convention respecting the establishment of the Bank for International Settlements was signed between Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom on the one hand, and Switzerland on the other. Now, Think of me as like a history teacher, folks. See, I've said many times in the show, part of why I'm doing this is to build a homeschool lesson, the basis for a homeschool lesson on the history of our country for my son, William. So when he's four or five years old, starting to really understand what's going on, this is a lot of the history I'm going to teach him. This is about the people that actually control the world we live in. You don't learn all this stuff in uh, the public indoctrination centers. So there's no point in learning sort of a full-blown history on a country that is not a country any longer. I mean, I'm obviously going to teach him about the founding, but I'm going to basically do a lesson in three days on the founding. I think at this point, the founding that we learn about 
He's like learning the founding of uh, the Roman Empire. You only need to know so much because it doesn't exist anymore. So we need to learn about the current power structures, the people that have control over the world. And this is going to be the basis for that. So when I'm going through this, I am helping you with whatever you're going to teach your kids or grandkids, trying to understand who's in power today, how this system actually works you know if that's important to you all right next is the bank for international settlements during the second world war 1939 to 1948 in the late 1930s international cooperation became difficult due to growing political and military tensions during this period the bis was instrumental in shipping gold from europe to the safety of new york mostly on behalf of european central banks now the other thing i will point out is we can get into uh, you know, the real history of all these things, which we'll eventually do in the show. I'm talking 50, 60 episodes out. We'll go back, get into the real history of all this, because this is the official narrative, obviously, coming off the Bank for International Settlements website. But this is the narrative that uh, anyone growing up uh, under an education in finance or economics or geopolitics if they go to college for this. This is what they're learning. So we're learning what they're learning. This is what they actually believe. All right, and we can get into uh, conspiracies and everything else behind all of these institutions, which I'm going to do. I'm eventually going to do. But right now, uh, I'm just teaching you about what the official narrative is and why these folks have so much power. All right. It says the BIS is a forum for European monetary cooperation, 1947 to 1993. In the aftermath of World War II, Europe's priority was stabilizing the different national currencies before trade and foreign exchange restrictions could be gradually lifted. The European countries turned to the Bank for International Settlements to act as the technical agent for creating a European payments union. The BIS going global, 1961 to present. The success of the European Payments Union in restoring currency convertibility in Europe in 1958 meant that the Bretton Woods system was finally operational throughout the Western world. A good deal of international cooperation was required to keep this system running smoothly. And then it says here, the BIS is the new financial architecture, 1997 to present. The 1997 Asian crisis and 1998 Russian crisis prompted further rethinking of the global financial architecture. In February 1999, the Financial Stability Forum was created, which became the Financial Stability Board in 2009 to coordinate the work of national financial authorities and international standard-setting bodies. All right, so that's a brief history there on the Bank for International Settlements. All right, we're moving over now to the World Bank. That's worldbank.org. And it says right on the front page of their website, what we do. The World Bank works in every major area of development. We provide a wide array of financial products and technical assistance. And we help countries share and apply innovative knowledge and solutions to the challenges they face. All right, and so you can go through this website and read all this nonsensical stuff about all the things that these guys are doing. But we're going to go over here to the history 
of the World Bank. All right, it says uh, Bretton Woods Conference. In July 1944, one year before the end of World War II, delegates from 44 countries met for the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference held at the Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. The conference aimed to create the framework for post-war international economic cooperation and reconstruction. The intellectual leaders at the conference were John Maynard Keynes, advisor to the Treasury in the United Kingdom, and Harry Dexter White, assistant secretary of the Treasury in the United States. Again, this is World Bank uh, official narrative stuff here, folks, just so you understand the history. I mean, this stuff minimally should be in uh, history books at the public indoctrination centers because these are the controlling powers here, right? It says, while the conference resulted in the formation of two institutions, the International Monetary Fund, right, which we're about to get into, and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, that's the World Bank, the creation of the World Bank was not the primary focus. The majority of time and effort was spent on the IMF Commission under Harry Dexter White's leadership. The work of the World Bank Commission, on the other hand, occurred only in the last few days of the conference and its Articles of agreement, primarily drafted by John Maynard Keynes, included rebuilding the economies of countries devastated by war and increasing the economic development of developing countries. So what do you see right there? It starts off in July 1994, uh, 1944, one year before the end of World War II, right? These guys all meet at the Bretton Woods uh, New Hampshire Convention. And what comes out of it? The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And for what purposes, right? Rebuilding the economies of countries devastated by war and increasing the economic development of developing countries. So let me ask you this. A year before World War II ends, these guys, all these bankers are meeting in New Hampshire to form the IMF and the World Bank, of which today are two of the three major groups. Well, and if you want to add in the United Nations, you can, and the World Economic Forum, but that really sits below IMF, World Bank, and Bank for International Settlements. You have them saying, oh, well, we went to World War II. Now, now we have to rebuild the economies of the countries devastated by war. Does that, does that pique some interest with you that maybe one of the reasons, and it's not the only reason, all of these things have multiple purposes, but maybe one of the reasons why we had a world war was to bring in the creation of a World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to oversee all these countries. You ask yourself, if you have all these countries that each have these central banks and all these central banks are connected together, you would ask how these countries, I mean, in modern day, in present day, how all these countries are at war with each other if the central bankers are all operating together and all these countries have these international treaties on an international monetary system. Hmm. Interesting, right? Because the money makes the world go round, folks. The money makes the world go round. So you'd have to say to yourself, that's interesting. Maybe part of the reason of World War II was so that they could introduce the IMF and the World Bank. Now, let's just go back over here uh, to the uh, BIS.org history. 
And I just want to pull back up. Uh, where is it, folks? Right. So it says... I'm back here at the BIS going global 1961 to present. The success of the European Payments Union restoring currency convertibility in Europe in 1958 meant that the Bretton Woods system was finally operational throughout the Western world, right? So they're talking about this Bretton Woods system, all right, what they created out of Bretton Woods with the World Bank and the IMF. Right, so first you had Bank for International Settlements, and then you have this convention, right? So BIS starts in 1930, and then you have, well, 1930 coming out of um, uh, this agreement here between Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom, and then Switzerland. And then you go to 1944, now brings in the IMF and the World Bank. All right, so now... Uh, as we go further down into the World Bank, we're going to look 1946 to 1967. And I hope you're writing this down, folks. This is history class. I'm Professor Gold. <laughs> I would have been a terrible, terrible school teacher. I would have told the kids to disobey me and challenge me at every chance they got. It says the World Bank is uh, builder and engineer. The bank's first loan was to France, and loans to other European countries filed. This is the World Bank. But when the 1947 Marshall Plan took over post-war reconstruction efforts in Europe, the bank quickly shifted to funding infrastructure projects around the world in sectors such as power, irrigation, and transportation. The first loan to a non-European country was to Chile in 1948 for $13.5 million for hydroelectric power generation. The bank also initiated a technical assistance program and in 1955 established the Economic Development Institute to provide training to officials from member countries. Now, as we start to break all this down going into the future, I'm just telling you, I'm introducing this to you now because we're about to get into more panel discussions and I want you to have an understanding of who all these groups are and the players are. But as we go further into research, we're talking 15, 20 episodes out, I'm going to start tying this stuff, the Marshall Plan, building of infrastructure in various countries, uh, all this stuff post-World War II. You know, we've talked about Operation Paperclip, bringing 1,500 Nazis over here, MK Ultra, the Nazi torture experiments that we continued here in the United States. You're going to see that a lot of this stuff that grew out of World War II such as FDR's New Deal and Social Security and all these other things that came to fruition, folks, coming out of the Great Depression and then going into World War II, growing out of World War II. We're going to start to look at the timeline of all this stuff, and you're going to see how the World Bank and the IMF and the BIS played major roles in helping establish the foundation and the elements needed to build an infrastructure for an international Techni, an international technocracy. That's eventually where we're going to go with this, folks. So you know uh, the way my mind is thinking right now. And right now, my mind is only thinking about one thing. I need to take a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash Gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. I am Dustin Gold, and this is the Dustin Gold Standard. You are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump right back into this, folks. We're just looking at the history of the World Bank here. It says, during the early years, the bank evolved to meet the needs of its members. In 1956, the International Finance Corporation, the IFC, was established to focus exclusively on the private sector. And in 1960, the International Development Association, the IDA, was created to provide resources for less creditworthy members. The IFC's first loan was to Brazil in the amount of $2 million for the manufacture of electrical equipment. The bank also mediated three international disputes that had an economic element, the nationalization of Iran's oil industry, the development of the Indus River water system, and the financing of the Aswan High Dam on the Nile. Now, as you can see here, all right, that's 1946 to 1967. As you can see here, and the title of this is the World Bank as Builder and Engineer, right? Can you start to see all the control? Where do you think all these projects over time have come from? Where do you think globalization, the idea of globalization came from? It didn't just magically appear, folks. It's been here for a very long time, a very long time. So again, just put it into context with when we talk about uh, the idea of this constitutional republic is dead. We were forming these international bodies, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, This stuff has been in play for a long time. Let's go on. 1968 to 1981, the World Bank confronts poverty. All right. By the 1970s, over 40% of people in developing countries lived in absolute poverty. And in response, the World Bank's projects aimed to help the poor directly. World Bank President Robert McNamara coined the term, quote, absolute poverty, end quote, in his 1973 annual meeting speech and was the first to communicate the World Bank's twin goals, quote, to accelerate economic growth and to reduce poverty, end quote. That was from the World Development Report in 1978. These concepts transformed the bank into the institution focused on the development that we know today. Now, I'm not saying this. I would have to do individual research or research on individual countries and their situations and everything else at the time. But I think absolute poverty is in the eyes of the beholder. You would have to go investigate that. I don't know. If you owned 10 acres, right, uh, and you were supposedly in poverty, but you grew your own vegetables, uh, you just didn't have flat screen TVs and three BMW payments and a McMansion, I mean, are you in poverty? Is the technocratic, technological, materialistic, consumeristic society that we moved the world into post-World War II considered to be wealthy and rich in what terms? And so if you're strapped down with a $3,000 a month mortgage payment and four car payments and you have a bunch of uh, flat screen TVs, computers, iPads, tablets, smartwatches, and Amazon ring cameras, I mean, does that make you wealthy? Or would you honestly... Let's. Would you be willing to trade that? 
this system of slavery would you be willing to trade that if you had 10 acres out in the middle of nowhere uh, let's say half Amish you have electricity but you're growing your own food you have your own cattle you have those skills uh, to be able to uh, slaughter and butcher those animals and you barely have to go out and work in the terms of work today because you're self-sustaining I mean would you trade that if you could snap your fingers and have that tomorrow I mean, would you trade what you have, what you consider to be wealth? It's wealth within this world. I'm not sitting here preaching to go Gandhi and everything or to go full Amish. I'm just asking. So when the banks came in, the World Banks, and they started loaning money, basically putting all of these so-called poverty-stricken countries They were apparently doing fine up to this point when they started loaning them money, basically putting them into debt, indebting them to the World Bank, you know, to the IMF, to the Bank for International Settlements, to this global central banking system. Do you think those people were better off before or after? I mean, are they wealthy now because they get to drive around a Tesla? I mean, is that what wealth means? And does wealth mean happiness? Or is happiness in your heart? I know that money in the world that we live in today makes things easier, right? If you know your bills are paid next month without stressing. So it brings down stress levels and can allow you to be happier. But I found in the last couple of years since my divorce, I've looked at the world in a different way. And happiness is in my heart. It's a state of mind. I don't need to have everything. I had a lot of things before. And I realized that I actually wasn't happy. I wasn't really that happy. Now, I am extremely happy. And yes, to know that I have money to pay my bills next month makes me happier. I've been up. I've been down throughout my life. Uh, Back before I was married, I was in corporate entertainment. I used to make a lot of money and I run around with my expensive suits on and I blew a lot of that money. I wasn't very responsible. Uh, I would go do a big corporate job. Then I would go party. Uh, I would just do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted because I was only responsible for myself. And I never really had a dream of uh, being married and having a kid. I didn't think about that back in my late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at the history here now where we go in, uh, we form these world banks, we start loaning money to these supposedly poor countries, we get them in debt to the world banks, to the central banking system. And then we go build these technocratic prison planets around them. Everything that we're seeing today, everything that folks on different podcasts are talking about coming out of the World Economic Forum has been in motion for decades, you know, almost 100 years. This is why it was important that we looked at the history of Technocracy Incorporated and the Technical Alliance and the Committee on Technocracy and the progressive era eugenics movement that was going on all around the world that leads us to transhumanism, that leads us to to the current technocratic state that leads us to central bank digital currencies, this system of total control, because this is the untaught true history of our country. 
uh, of the world, you know, of the Western world, the developed world. This is actually the true history of how we got to where we are today. And I think it's important to fully understand this. You are reteaching yourself. You are understanding the actual truth. So when things are happening today, we don't say, oh, no, this is what they said. At the, that was decided years ago. The trajectory was put into motion many, many years ago. It goes on to say lending to member countries increased 12-fold between 1968 and 1981 and expanded into new sectors, environment, rural, development, water, sanitation, education, and others. This is all stuff the World Bank was uh, funding. The global effort to eradicate river blindness is one example of how the bank worked to improve the lives of the poor, which was different from the large infrastructure projects that were done in the bank's first 20 years. The first loan for the environment was in 1971 for pollution control in Brazil, and the bank subsequently built environmental safeguards into its process. During the 1970s, economists were the primary advisors in the bank, but staff with different skills in anthropology, sociology, environmental science, and other sectors were hired to provide even more expertise to clients. So you brought all the scientists in. See, this is the technocracy, and this is where it's all managed. So now, we're the World Bank. We're giving you big, giant loans. We're going to bring you out of poverty. We're going to turn you into a developing country. We're going to move you into second world status, and then eventually first world status. But you have to take our money, and you have to let our scientists come in and take over your governments because it's being run at a world international bureaucratic level at this point. When you go and look at the local laws and zoning and stuff going on in your town and your counties, you're going to find sustainability riddled throughout all those documents. That's because your own town, whether they know it or not, is on board with the UN agendas, but it all comes back to the World Bank, the IMF, Bank for International Settlements. They're setting the standards. When you hear about ESGs today and all this wokeness going on in the companies, it all stems from these organizations. The people that control this made-up money system, whether it's fiat cash, you know, coins, or digital tokens, they control the monetary system. Therefore, they can force everyone into doing exactly what they want to do. And they're not doing it to make the world a better place. They're doing it to have total control. Wide Awake Jim is going to talk about about some of the projects going on today where they're actually tracking every fish in the water. I've talked about it as basically installing a Microsoft operating system into everything on Earth down to the last blade of grass, down to the last mosquito. Well, you can see the origins of this stuff here going back almost 100 years ago. The very beginning with the World Bank, the central bankers started deciding they're going to lend money to people. If you do this, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you widen your rivers if you do better agriculture so the world bank the bankers the central bankers come in and they start to push their own agenda this system of control through the money they're lending while at the same time driving you or driving these countries or the citizens of these countries that didn't vote for any of this into uh, debt slavery into debt slavery because the banks are loaning them the money to do these projects 
It says here 1982 to 1994, economies in transition and structural adjustment. The 1980s and 90s brought additional challenges related to oil shocks, debt crises, and environmentalism, and the bank reacted by bringing new skills and safeguards into its work as well as structural adjustment. But you see, they're going in to solve many of the problems that they actually created. It's a problem-reaction-solution loop. Structural adjustment loans came with policy conditions, such as fiscal discipline, tax reform, and liberalization of foreign direct investment. But while they were intended to improve the policy and institutional environment in which the loans were made, their overall effectiveness was debated internally and in the client community. So you see, they come in with the money, they dangle the money, but with the money comes policy conditions. So now if you want the money, you have to do X, Y, Z. And that's exactly what the central bank digital currency does all the way down to the retail level, to the consumer level, to our level. You will be able to get this money in the form of what a social security, disability, welfare, EBT, universal basic income, but it comes with a set of conditions. You need to be vaccinated. You need to get your college degree. You need to uh, pay your taxes. You need to do X, Y, and Z. It's always tied to conditions, folks. The money they dangle, whether it's paper, monopoly money, or digital tokens, is the carrot. Is the carrot. And then the stick is oh, we're going to turn you off. We're going to shut you down. We're going to stop you from buying and selling in the system if you don't go along. But we will give you the money if you do X, Y, and Z. And this was going on at a grander scale back here between 82 and 94 and even before that. It says in the 1990s, the bank assisted former Soviet nations to redirect their economies after the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And many of these newly sovereign nations became World Bank members. In 1991, the Global Environment Facility, the GEF, was established to further the focus on safeguarding the environment. And in 1996, the heavily indebted poor countries debt initiative was improved to enable poor countries to focus on sustainable development and reducing poverty. The World Bank added another institution to the group when the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, MIGA, was formed in 1988 to provide political risk assurance and credit enhancement to investors and lenders. All right, and it's funny because my wife was just telling me, uh, as we read here, the bank assisted former Soviet nations to redirect their economies after the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and many of these newly sovereign nations became World Bank members. I'm not saying the Soviet Union was a good thing. My wife grew up, uh, she was born in 1983, all right, so they started breaking up in 90. I think they fully cleared out of Poland in 92. So until she was almost 10 years old, she grew up under that system. Her parents, my in-laws, grew up under the uh, system, and it was really bad. It was it was really strict. They gave out food coupons and everything else. But see, when we go break these countries up, we then go in and we stick these central banks in there. And now you're under the control of the bankers. Uh, that's how it works. And my wife was telling me she came here to go to college when she was, I think, 19 to American University, and she was going, I think, for geopolitics at first. And so she actually told me that she was uh, almost 
uh, intern with the World Bank, and then she read a book, I forget the name of it, about how evil they were and actually decided not to pursue going into that. But a lot of the people that come over here as immigrants from Europe, like my wife, they go to college, they get a lot of degrees, and then they get sucked into working for things like the UN, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund. She said a lot of people she knows ended up working inside of these organizations. All right, folks, when we get back more on this, we have to finish it up. You have to have an understanding of where all this stuff comes from it's not new it's been around we just haven't been taught the truth ladies and gentlemen i'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv ladies and gentlemen i am dustin gold welcome back to the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold all right folks let's take a look at the international monetary fund because all these folks work in sync, ladies and gentlemen. So you have the Bank for International Settlements, you have the World Bank, and you have the International Monetary Fund. So the IMF, and I'm over here at IMF.org, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, works to achieve sustainable growth and prosperity for all of its 190 member countries. It does so by supporting economic policies that promote fiscal stability and monetary cooperation, which are essential to increase productivity job creation, and economic well-being. All right, and so you can go uh, through the IMF, and we can take a look at their history. So you have 1940s here out of the ashes. Um, Let's take a look. They have actually a whole uh, presentation here on their website. It says, the IMF in history. 1940s, out of the ashes. As World War II draws to a close, Allied leaders draft plans for a post-war economic order. That's what I said. Now, maybe, maybe the war had something to do with this. And so, again, this brings up the July 1944 Bretton Woods conference representatives of 44 allied nations seeking to avoid the mistakes that led to depression and remember the depression was what 1930 to 1939 and then you had world war ii growing out of that uh and world war ii uh, meet to plan a new economic order built on global cooperation so a new economic order They set up a system of exchange rates linked to the dollar to be supervised by the International Monetary Fund, and they give the fund three critical missions, promoting international monetary cooperation, supporting the expansion of trade and economic growth, and discouraging policies that would harm prosperity. March 1947, the IMF begins operations. Membership starts at 40 and grows to 189 by 2016 with the entry of NORA. 
May 8th, 1945, you have VE Day, Germany surrenders to Allied forces ending in Europe. And then you have the 1950s Cold War. Communist nations dominated, uh, dominated by the Soviet Union and China withdraw from the global economic system. So June 1948, you had the Berlin blockade. Again, folks, we're learning a little history today. Soviet Union begins blockade of West Berlin, which is set to last until May 12, 1949, in first major Cold War confrontation. March 1950, Poland withdraws from the International Monetary Fund. Eastern Bloc nation acts under pressure from USSR as Cold War intensifies. Poland will be readmitted in 1986. And then you have October 1956, Swiss crisis conflict over or sorry Suez crisis conflict over Suez Canal involving Egypt France Israel and the United Kingdom touches off international political crisis with major economic repercussions first big loans the Suez crisis is an early test of IMF's crisis management role and leads to first large burst of lending by IMF to the four countries involved right uh oh uh-oh, so they start giving out loans here as a result of certain things going on, folks. I don't know. Is it orchestrated? Is there a conspiracy there, conspiracy theory? In 1960s, decolonization of Africa. Under pressure from independence movements, France, United Kingdom, and other European powers give up their colonies. In 1961, IMF creates Africa Department. Only three of the IMF's earliest members were in Africa. Egypt, Ethiopia, and South Africa. By end of 1969, another 34 have joined. So the question is, under pressure from independence movements, France, United Kingdom, and other European powers give up their colonies. Well, who did they give up the colonies to? They give the colonies up to the people of Africa, or did they give the colonies up to the central bankers, to the IMF, to the World Bank, to the BIS? Ha! Huh, see? They didn't really give up power, folks. They just moved it <laughs> to a more powerful body. Says 1970s Vietnam War and oil shocks. U.S. spending on Vietnam War and domestic social programs leads to inflation and overvaluation of the dollar. August 1971, gold convertibility ends. U.S. President Richard, I am not a crook, Nixon, suspends convertibility of dollar into gold, ending system of fixed exchange rates created at Bretton Woods. OPEC oil embargo. In wake of Arab-Israeli war, OPEC members announce embargo against United States, Canada, Japan, United Kingdom, and Netherlands, leading to surge in global oil prices. IMF creates new tools to help countries facing an energy emergency in line with the fund's role to help smooth shocks and prevent harmful spillovers. You see, every time there's a giant crisis, the IMF, the World Bank, the BIS gain more power. Are you noticing that trend there, folks? A crisis is created, but the world bankers come to the rescue, which means you're selling out more of your freedom, your liberty, and your human autonomy to them. April 1978, flexible exchange rates. International Monetary Fund acknowledges right of members to adopt exchange rate agreements of their choice. 
1980s international debt crisis. Banks use, quote, petrodollars, end quote, profits of oil-producing countries to increase lending to developing nations. So August 1982, Mexico defaults. Uh, Renunciation of foreign debt marks beginning of debt crisis across Latin America. IMF takes on role of international crisis manager, again, coming in uh, to seize more power. March 1986, help for low-income nations. IMF establishes facility to lend to low-income developing countries at below market rates. That's, we will give you money if you do what we say. 1990s, collapse of communism, debt relief. Formerly communist nations join the global economy and capital starts to flow more freely across borders. November 1989, fall of Berlin Wall, collapse of communism in Europe ends post-war division of the continent. December 1991, Soviet Union is dissolved. 20 formerly communist nations soon join the IMF, the biggest expansion of its membership since the 1960s. Fund plays a central role in helping them manage transition from centrally planned to market-driven economies with policy advice, technical assistance, and financial support. Right, So the bankers come in and they take control. As you see, I think you see, I see it, is that the bankers are basically a country that is conquering all of these other countries without actually having to have a country. <laughs> their central bank is basically their uh, U.S. capital, their White House that they're dropping into your country. Uh, after a war tears down a country, the central bankers come into the rescue. Through the World Bank, through the IMF, through BIS. Doesn't really matter. December 1994, Mexican crisis. Mexico devalues peso against dollar, promoting investors to withdraw funding. IMF participates in $50 billion program to stabilize Mexico's economy. It also provides financial assistance to Russia, Brazil, and other emerging markets. 1996, debt relief. IMF and World Bank launch initiative for heavily indebted poor countries to ensure that no low-income country bears a debt burden it cannot manage. Debt relief for 36 countries comes to almost $77 billion by 2017. Now, why would the bankers do that? Because they love these poor countries because they're philanthropic? Is it because they are altruistic folks no ladies and gentlemen because they're gaining control it's almost as if these events are orchestrated to allow the bankers to step in i don't know some might believe that it's just my uh it's not even my opinion i'm just throwing it out there it's food for thought july 1997 asian financial crisis thailand devalues bought marking beginning of asian crisis august 1997 imf loans announces $17 billion program for Thailand, followed by packages of $23 billion for Indonesia and $57 billion for South Korea. All in the middle of launching central bank digital currency right now. Crisis in Russia in 1998. Asian crisis spreads to Russia, already hobbled by severe budget deficits, causing plunge in Russian stocks, bonds, and ruble. IMF and international lenders provide $22.6 billion to help stabilize country's economy. 
Are you asking yourself where they got all this money from? You should be. 1999, FSAP is created. IMF and World Bank, drawing on experience of Asian crisis, create financial sector assistance program to gauge resilience of members' financial systems. January 1999, the euro is born. Euro is initially used as a unit of account to replace European currency unit or ECU. Euro notes and coins begin to circulate January 1st, 2002. European Central Bank granted observer status at International Monetary Fund. When we get back, folks, we've got more to go through here. But this is the true history of the world. You want to sit there back in 2015 and Trump is running and say, we are for nationalism. We are against against globalism or as trump said eventually i am both a nationalist and a globalist believe me folks both things are great a nationalist globalist but here's the thing when you're looking at this i don't know some of you probably have read this you've read books on these topics uh, but if you actually go through this just on the official narrative here when you look at the history of how the current world was formed in the last, you know, 80 to 100 years, and I like to start off with the progressive era. So the late 1800s with the eugenicists coming out of the economic movement uh, all the way to now. So we're talking 130 years. You could see how the world was actually shaped. You can actually see what we're living in now. You'll understand where globalism comes from. You'll understand how the bankers have control over all these countries. The bankers fund all the programs we're talking about from eugenics to transhumanism uh, to technocracy. I mean, we're living in the technocracy, but you could see here folks going through the history uh, what this all looks like and it's important i'm glad we did this today because now we're going to come out of this being able to analyze the future panel discussions and talk to wide awake jim with having a full understanding of what it is we are actually dealing with folks remember sun Tzu, art of war know thy enemy ladies and gentlemen know who you're fighting or know who you are at least going to try to run from all right folks i'm going to run from you for a short minute my name is dustin gold i'll be right back this is the dustin gold standard on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, folks. And right here up on the screen, for those of you over at Pain.tv slash gold, just a quick little quote here from Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Eventually, we'll go over that book. Uh, I actually read it several times, uh, and I was teaching it to uh, one of my ex-stepkids. Uh, but it says here, uh, quote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy... For every victory gained, you will suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. What does that mean, ladies and gentlemen? 
If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Okay, if you know yourself and you know the people that you're fighting against, but you have to truly understand what you're fighting, who you're fighting. Most of us really don't know what we're fighting. Right, and that's part of what we're trying to get to here at the Dust and Gold Standard. We're trying to understand what we're actually fighting. And one of the reasons why I don't like to chase fires and I don't like to cover daily news, uh, one, because it really bores me, is that when you're running around trying to put out fires over some law that the Congress passed or over some decision a judge made or over something that Elon Musk is doing with Twitter today or over something that Elon Musk is doing with Twitter tomorrow or over the fact that Twitter might have hid files that had to do with an election that might have been rigged and all this stuff. It's just WWE wrestling. Well, you're going to be fighting battles all day, every day because you don't understand who the actual enemy is. You don't know who the enemy is. You don't know the enemy because you don't even know who the enemy is. This enemy is gigantic. The enemy is all around us, right? So you're going to fight this this battle after battle after battle trying to put out these fires because you don't really understand who and what that enemy actually is. It says, if you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. So if you're true to yourself and really know yourself and your strengths, and you go through what we talked about, which was creating a list of your goals, and then creating a list of where you're at today, and then a realistic list of how you're going to reach those goals, the solutions you have to get to those goals, And you really understand that. You really have a path forward. But you don't know your enemy. You haven't studied your enemy. You don't know about the IMF and BIS and the World Bank. You don't want to learn about the coming central bank digital currency or universal basic income or the surveillance state or technocracy or transhumanism. You don't want to understand all this stuff. Then it doesn't matter how well you know yourself because you don't know your enemy and therefore for every battle that you win i'm talking about simple battles like let's say i go aha aha i learned how to make bread i can survive i can beat you but i don't realize that eventually they may turn off my electricity or not allow me to have an electric or a gas stove and i didn't go and figure out how to cook this bread on a fire okay or I didn't make plans for how I'm going to get yeast or how I'm going to get flour, right? I didn't fully understand my enemy and the capabilities of my enemy, that they could eventually stop me from being able to buy flour or buy yeast or get access to clean water or be able to buy salt. I didn't prepare for that. So now I can make bread. They shut off my oven. They stop me from buying flour. So I think I win, right? I have a victory because I learned how to make bread. One step closer to being self-sustaining. They shut off my electricity. They stopped me with a CBDC from being able to buy flour. Now I was just defeated. So without understanding your enemy, 
but knowing yourself and understanding your plans, your capabilities, your skill set, you really built up your skills, you're ready to survive in a half Amish world, they shut you out because you didn't bother to educate yourself on your true enemy and try to understand them and be one step ahead of them. Okay, fine. I can't buy flour. Guess what, idiots? I bought a secret location, two acres up in West Virginia, dug a big hole, put in a fruit cellar. I have the ability to absorb the moisture there using old school technology. I don't need electricity. I don't need a dehumidifier. And I have flour stored for the next 50 years to make bread. So screw you. I built a stone oven up there where I can cook bread. I don't need electricity. I stored wood down in my cellar. I can have fire for the next 25 years. Guess what? screw you nothing you can do to me see i knew my enemy so i could get around them but if you don't know the enemy you can't and it says if you know neither the enemy nor yourself and that's most of the people floating around i would say 99 percent of the people floating around they don't know themselves they haven't looked in the mirror they haven't leveled with themselves they don't know their current situation they don't know that everything they have is just built on debt. It could all come crumbling down. These guys can pull the rug from them because everything they have operates within that system. They can force you into a 400-square-foot cube and put a mask on your face because you're not prepared. You don't know yourself, and you sure as hell don't know them. Then be prepared to lose every single battle. All right? That's basically what it means in this context. And so this is why I'm working hard every day to educate myself further than I have in the past and then be able to pass that on to you and be able to package this into a series of discussions that will help my son be able to understand who the enemy is in this world and how he is going to work around them. Or some people may choose to join them. You know, once he turns... 13, 14, 15, he starts to figure out his way in the world, he may say, hey, dad, you know what? I understand and appreciate what you did for me, but I'm getting a brain chip and I'm going to take my chances and I want to live in the metaverse. Well, that's his decision. But you know what? I would have taught him all about that technology as well. So he's prepared and he goes into that contract with the uh, prison planet wardens of the matrix understanding full well what can happen to him and the potential risks and potential rewards of living in that system so understand yourself and understand your enemy and then you have a fighting chance to try to achieve whatever the goals are that you have written down my goals are different than your goals uh they're different than your neighbor's goals i guarantee everyone at pain.tv slash gold has different goals they're all in different situations this is why when people say well what are the solutions there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to any of these problems because some of these problems certain people may not look at as problems all right so i hope that helps you understand a bit uh, where i'm coming from all right let's get back to imf.org it says 2000s debt forgiveness global financial crisis and so it says here january 2001 debt relief imf and world bank announced that 22 countries including 18 in africa qualify for debt relief 
IMF and World Bank announced that 22 countries qualify for debt relief. Well, gee, thank you, central bankers. You print the money out of nowhere, and then you're going to give it to me. I appreciate that. If I play by your rules and I do what you tell me. December 2001, China joins uh, World Trade Organization. Entry into WTO marks China's integration into global economy. Okay, September 2008, Lehman Brothers declares bankruptcy. Collapse of U.S. investment bank marks beginning of global financial crisis. In following decade, IMF provides financing of about $500 billion, that's a half a trillion dollars, to 90 countries and injects $250 billion into global financial system, helping avert another Great Depression and enabling recovery of the global economy. November 2008, GTO, uh, this is the G20, G20 Washington Summit. Leaders of group of 20 major advanced and emerging market economies lay foundation for reforms to strengthen global financial system. In years that follow, the International Monetary Fund works with standard-setting bodies to improve surveillance and strengthen supervision and regulation of financial firms. G20 nations agree to undergo mandatory financial sector assessments by the IMF. So see, now the IMF has the ability back there in the early 2000s to now uh, go in there and to do financial sector assessments. It's mandatory. See, it takes a long time. Right to bribe everyone into getting on board with your system of complete and total control. <laughs> it's brilliant, though. It's brilliant. I mean, if I was a bad guy, you know, I probably would choose to work for these folks. International Crime Syndicate. Uh, 2010s, a halting recovery. As advanced economies struggle to recover, turmoil sweeps Middle East. December 2010, governance reform, IMF board approves far-reaching changes that give greater say in decisions to China, India, Mexico, Brazil, and other emerging market economies. 2010 to 2013, European sovereign debt crisis, soaring budget deficits so down about ability of several European countries to repay debts, government bailouts of Ailing banks add to pressure, temporarily shaking investor confidence and viability of euro. IMF joins European Central Bank and European Commission in providing emergency loans to Cyprus, Greece, Ireland, and Portugal. 2011 to 2014, Arab Spring. Unrest and civil conflict sweep across Middle East, removing rulers in Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. IMF provides $37 billion in loans to stabilize and reform regions, economies, and technical assistance on taxation, monetary policy, and public finances, among other areas. You guys see this? Every time there's a crisis, the World Bank's IMF and the BIS get more powerful. It's almost as if these things are orchestrated. 2014 to 2015, Ebola response. IMF is one of the first international financial institutions to respond, delivering $130 million to three countries in September 2014 and another $160 million in February 2015. September 2016, uh, Remnimbi joins currency basket. Chinese currency added to IMF's currency basket alongside dollar, euro, 
pound and yen in sign of China's growing importance in global economy. April to June 2018, Argentine crisis. IMF approves $50 billion loan, later increased to $57 billion to help Argentina's economy in the face of destabilizing market conditions. I mean, I'm going through all this because I want you to see a pattern. Basically, every one of the things that I saved the IMF for the last because they had the best uh, historical timeline. And everything you see with the IMF, it's tied to the World Bank, tied to Bank for International Settlements. It all has to go together. I'll show you that momentarily. But as you can see, all these crises that, I mean, I'm someone who's followed the news over the years, so I recognize pretty much the name, uh, at least... I I go, oh, okay, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. When you're talking about Ebola, sovereign debt crisis, and all these things. Every single time these things occur, IMF and or World Bank come sweeping in, right? Boom, here we are, we're going to save the day. Here's $57 billion we printed out of uh, thin air. You're going to come in, we're going to give you that. But, but, you're going to have to do X, Y, Z. And every one of these is a rabbit hole. You could spend a hundred episodes going through every single one of these crises, right? Every single one, break them down, figure out when the IMF or when the World Bank gave these guys money, what they had to give up. A lot of these cases ended up with them putting a central bank into their countries, but then they give them money, and I told you, they turn the citizens into debt slaves because the country technically owes the IMF or the World Bank, and now you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to stay in their good graces, all right? Some of these so-called dictator puppets we've seen over the years, Muammar Gaddafi and others, they get dragged out of their homes, beaten to death, and lit on fire. A lot of those are guys who tried to, whether they were good or bad overall, doesn't matter. A lot of them were guys that tried to stand up to the central bankers where they got power and then they said, screw you, I'm the boss, nothing you can do. And we say, yeah, right, we're going to come and drag you out of your house and kill you. And so we go in, we launch a coup, we take these people out of power. So every one of these is a rabbit hole. Uh, But each crisis that occurs, you see the central bankers gaining more power, consolidating more power, centralizing more power under their global economic system. And this is why all of a sudden, there's 112 countries working on central bank digital currencies because the whole system is run from the top on a bank for international settlements that started in 1930. And then you have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund started in 1944. Right, So you can see how this system works, folks. It's a system of global power, and it is a technocracy because these guys are operating above above the level of our so-called representative government. This whole thing is part of why I say we live in a culture of technocracy. We're in a quasi-technocracy, not just because within this country, technocratic transhumanists like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, and others operate in and out of government they weave in and out of our government because there's bodies above our 
elected officials above the legislative branch and above the executive branch, the president, and even above the judicial branch, uh, the courts, you know, that are operating to make the whole system work. And you see them pushing money around and all the money involves them building more technology, turning them into first world nations, developing countries. That means putting more technology, more surveillance, more control. And that's what we're moving towards here with the central bank digital currency system. Folks, I'm moving towards a break. I'll be right back. This is Dust of Gold with the Dust of Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, so I hope you're uh, you're really getting something out of this episode and out of the Dustin Gold Standard as a whole. I think when you come here, uh, especially if you're someone who hasn't filed this stuff in depth over the years, you're picking up you know, hundreds of pieces of intelligence with every single show we do here at the Dustin Gold Standard. I mean, I'm really trying to teach you about this entire system, not just fight the little fires that pop up all over the place. We can't run around trying to put out these little fires. At the same time, I think it's counterproductive to have false hope like hope that the system is going to go back to normal. What is normal? Was the system normal before COVID land, the high school theater production? Was everything okay before that? Or was everything that we were living under then all controlled and fake as well? Well, of course it was. All of these systems were already in place. COVID-19 is just another blip on the radar off of all of these other crises we just read from this international monetary fund history going back to 1940 so if you want to take from the great depression era uh, around when the international monetary or sorry when the bank for international settlements was funded in 1930 at the very beginning of the great depression and then in the united states uh, fdr puts the new deal together which we know comes out of columbia university at the same time the technocrats were working there with uh technocracy incorporated and then the social security number comes into place which tags everyone in the united states i mean that's a big piece of the puzzle and then we go through all these crises from 1940 forward where the world bank the international monetary fund and bank for international settlements gains more power and each of these countries gets put under more control of the world banks and the central banks COVID 19 is just one blip folks you can see it if you're watching the show as we're going through the timeline here i'm at 2020 a crisis like no other the covid 19 pandemic creates the worst recession since the great depression right so it was another in my opinion orchestrated event just like the rest of them that gives them more power covid allows them to usher in the false industrial revolution and again the world economic forum is basically the chamber of commerce between the so-called public and private sectors and acts as the marketing arm 
okay, the marketing arm of the new technological world, the uh, merging of the physical, biological, and digital worlds. That's the next step coming out of the World Bank structure. That's the next step. So there was nothing normal before COVID happened. We were always in this system. COVID was set to happen. It was the next crisis, the next World War One, the next World War Two. COVID, you could look at as a World War Three. What did Trump say? We're fighting the invisible enemy, the invisible enemy. He made it like a war in order to put us into a state of emergency, in order to advance the jabs under the state of emergency, in order to launch Operation Warp Speed under the military. This was all planned. And this was going on worldwide. Trump wasn't the only one. It was an orchestrated worldwide event. This is why everything came together in sync. And so you have a lot of people that get pulled into the distraction, you know, because of various podcasts and such and social media influencers into still debating over whether Johnson and Johnson lied or Moderna did this or this one said that and Fauci said this and then Burks had her scarf on backwards. Did that mean this? Was she flashing a sign to the Illuminati? Illuminati. All that stuff was going on here, folks, while it was going on in the rest of the countries that are all part of the BIS, the IMF, and the World Bank structure. Right? Do you understand that? All of this was going on in all those countries. All these crises that take place are orchestrated events, and they're not conspiracy theories. Um, in fact, I don't even think they're really conspiracies. Look at COVID and go back to Event 201. Go back to Spars Pandemic. Go back to Clay X. Look at these things. Event 201 was uh, funded by the Gates Foundation and Johns Hopkins. They put it on. It was all over YouTube. Uh, what, in October of, was it October 2019? And a few months later, the pandemic kicks off. Come on. They play these things out right in front of us. They, they want us to know what's coming. But so COVID was just this blip on the radar in the whole history of complete and total control by the central bankers, the World Bank, the IMF, and the BIS. It's all orchestrated. So there was nothing normal before that. The problem is, is that most of us don't understand our enemy. And so once we start to figure out who the enemy is, and we'll even see, like, People like Peter Thiel that I love to harp on and people like Ray Kurzweil and Elon Musk and Dennis Bushnell, the chief scientist over at NASA, they are nodes within the system. All right. Think about what Elon Musk said. We are nodes in their system. And every time we interact with technology, we're helping them build the technocracy. We're helping them build the artificial intelligence hive mind. We're helping them build the system of total control. Well, they are just nodes in the system as well. All these guys are bit players. They move money around. They force adoption campaigns of technology. They make transhumanism and technocracy cool. They make UBI cool. They make CBDC hip. They're all players in this well. They're nodes within the technocratic system. Now, they are the haves, and they get to sit up at a higher level than we do. But see, the enemy is this whole system, but we also have to understand the history of the system because that's what will finally allow you to free yourself of the illusion uh, of, of some free land we were living in. 
uh, under some liberal democracy or some representative government here in the United States or anywhere within the West, really. That was just an illusion. It was just a realm within the matrix, right? And now all of a sudden you see a little bit of that getting peeled away because they're saying, aha, this is your new normal. Aha, this is the great reset. Aha, this is build back better. Aha, this is the fourth industrial revolution. This is web three. This is the metaverse. They're starting to show you and you go, oh my God, we're losing our freedom. We're losing our liberty. It was taken away a long time ago. It was taken away a long time ago, but the issue and I think it's important to point this out again, because this is it's not about blackpilling. It's about understanding your enemy and then starting to figure out how you're going to build your life to live one foot in and one foot outside this. But I will always say here, the silver lining in this is that the technocracy is a paper tiger. And as you can see more and more, uh, all these solutions, right, because Every problem that these folks create with technology, the solution is always more technology. They're always trying to drive you further into the technological prison planet. But the silver lining is that they are a paper tiger because it's all based on technology. If the technology collapses, if the electricity collapses, if the satellites that they're running this on collapse, if the internet goes down, Right, Whether it be our internet or their internet, I think they have a different internet they're operating on. But if that goes down, their whole system collapses. Everything they do ends up collapsing. They can't run their labs. They can't run their servers. They can't run central bank digital currency. That's how they're connecting everything. All right. The other thing, the other silver lining is this, is that I have kind of come to this conclusion um, because I had listened to a lot of podcasts over the years on, you know, lizard people and Nephilim and uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was fun, fun to listen to. Uh, or are some of these people satanic and they're actually directly working for the devil and all this? See, that stuff I don't buy into because the system they're building right the system they're building they wouldn't be going through all this with committees and conferences and ngos and world think tanks and bribing politicians and bribing ceos and threatening people and blackmail and all the rest of this if they were lizard people if they were lizard people why would they go through all this if they were directly working with Satan, what would be the point of doing all of this stuff? And then not only having to align all their evildoers, but then they have to trick all the worker bees into helping build this. And then they have to trick all the just normies walking around that don't even work within their systems. They don't have jobs that relate to these systems into getting on board with this stuff. And they got to trick people into gig work and everything. They, this is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. If they were magical wizards, they would just snap their fingers and all this stuff would be done. So there's a silver lining there is we're not dealing with some superhuman entity. Now, at some point, 
are these guys going to effectively become some sort of human cyborg lizard type thing plugging a brain chip in their head walking around with starlink satellites beaming a a third layer of their brain down in the form of a silicone-based neocortex like ray kurzweil and elon musk and peter thiel and the rest of them want and then their body is going to have nanobots running through it and they're going to be able to live forever i mean eventually will we have to battle those kind of people yeah that's probably going to be our biggest problem but right now they wouldn't be doing all this and they wouldn't be trying to insulate themselves from uh one of their orchestrated collapses because the thing that they fear is that we run to their houses and we momar Qaddafiim, not in an orchestrated fashion like the coups that they they strategize and they deploy but in a true in a true organic fashion where people rise up and get so pissed off and run to their homes and start burning them down and dragging them out on the streets you know and beating them to death with uh, rotten bananas i don't know but um it tells me that they are flesh and blood because they do fear that everything they do is so orchestrated it's so planned All right, it goes on to say 2020s, a crisis like no other. The COVID-19 pandemic creates the worst recession since the Great Depression. 2020, the great lockdown. To tackle the health emergency, countries froze large chunks of economic life. The IMF acts swiftly to help its members. Enormous uncertainty clouds the prospects for the global economy. Right, so that's how they end the history here on the website. Uh, with the great lockdown ladies and gentlemen so now they don't have anything new on here yet why because they obviously don't have an orchestrated event that they think was big enough yet what's going to be next the great cyber attack or is it going to be the uh, great russia ukraine war they haven't added that here yet is it going to be the great uh, electrical grid shortage i mean what's it going to be what's the next big one where the imf and the world bank come in and they take more power or or have they already taken all the power that they need and maybe that is the case maybe they consolidated all the power at this point all right we're over at uh, researchpedia.com that's researchpedia.info i said com it's researchpedia.info and i just want to show you this quick article difference between international monetary fund world bank and bank for international settlements and it says here there are many important financial institutions that operate for the economic developments throughout the world among these there are two institutions named as international monetary fund and world bank created by john maynard Keynes, a great economist of the 20th century in the united states with 44 nations in 1944 so we just learned about that before these institutions jointly identified as Bretton Woods institutions. Both of the institutions have a keen interest in economic issues of world and deliberately put their efforts to increase the economic strength of members nations. The headquarter of both institutions is in Washington, D.C. The Bank for International Settlements is an international financial institution owned and operated by central banks so the international monetary fund is the focal establishment that provides the worldwide money related framework and raises adjusted development related to world trade decreases 
restrictions on trade, makes exchange rates stable, avoids the currency devaluation, and gives remedy for balance of payment issues. The IMS objective is to prohibit and find solution of worldwide budgetary crisis by urging nations to keep up sound financial approaches. They keep them in line, folks. World Bank says the World Bank is a worldwide money-related foundation devoted to decrease poverty around the globe through capital speculation and trade facilitation. And then the Bank for International Settlements is abbreviated as BIS. Its aim is to foster international monetary and financial cooperation. It serves as a bank for central banks. So it says IMF versus World Bank versus BIS. There are some differences among IMF and World Bank, which are explained as follows. Okay, the purpose. The main purpose of the International Monetary Fund is attempting to encourage worldwide money-related collaboration, secure monetary strength, encourage international trade, and advance high level of employment and practical financial development and decrease poverty around the globe. So everything, right? So the IMF, it does everything. While the main concern of the World Bank is to raise financial and social advancement in developing nations by helping them to increase their efficiency and productivity so that their public may carry on with a superior and better life. So They basically come in and uh, manage your country. It says BIS's purpose is to act as a bank for the central banks. It works by holding congregations and programs for international groups pursuing global financial stability. It works as a facilitator of interaction between international financial organizations. So you have the uh, Bank for International Settlements sitting at the top, founded in 1930. Underneath that, you've got the world bank and then you have all the central banks under there and then you have the imf running around basically hijacking countries all right it's 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 not um i mean you don't have to understand it completely and i've gone through the sites and everything i've read a lot about it you don't have to understand the entire system completely if i was at a chalkboard i would sit here and draw it all for you but what you're going to see here momentarily is that they are all working uh, for the central bank digital currency they're all in cooperation on this let's just see real quick it says international monetary fund is a small staff based on 2300 workers from 182 member nations world bank has a large staff having 7,000 workers from 180 member nations and then the bank for international settlement uh, has members. There are 62 central banks and monetary authorities. These 62 members have a right for voting and representation at general meetings. All right. And so assistance, it says IMF gives help to all members, either industrial developing countries to find out the problem and balance of payment by giving short or medium term loans. Right. So the IMF comes in with the money, as you saw in the history of their timeline. It says World Bank assists only developing countries by providing them long term financial loans for the development programs and projects. And then the Bank for International Settlements provides assistance to central banks, major financial institutions and projects private individuals in terms of monetary help and settlement of finances. Folks, let's settle on a short break. I went long on that segment. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. 
You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's just breeze through this quickly. I'm over at uh, Investopedia.com, Investopedia.com. I just want to clarify this for you. This was another source I had. This is uh, IMF versus the World Bank, just so you understand. Main difference between the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank lies in their respective purposes and functions. The IMF oversees the stability of the world's monetary system, while the World Bank's goal is to reduce poverty by offering assistance to middle-income and low-income countries all right so just that there now let's go back to researchpedia.info this is bank or fund imf is actually a fund that means it does not borrow money it just lends the fund to 182 member nations world bank is actually a bank that explains that it can borrow and also lend the money a bank borrows new money from the investors in the world and lends out the money to the countries having poor government for their development projects and to reduce poverty bank for international settlements is a financial institution acting as a bank for international financial groups and central banks and so the structure structure of the imf is not very complex as it's Uh, Most of its staff works at headquarters, whereas it has small offices in Geneva, Paris, and New York, United Nations, right? So the United Nations in New York goes on to say the World Bank structure is somehow uh, somewhat complex uh, as compared to the IMF. It constitutes two main organizations named as the International Development Association, the IDA, and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That's the IBRD. All right. So it's the World Bank. And then you have Bank for International Settlements headquarters are situated at Basel, Switzerland. That was established on uh, May 17, 1930, as we learned earlier. It's an international financial institution that maintains cooperation between 62 central banks. And then it says IMF is not called a bank, so it does not work between borrowers and investors. The World Bank can be named as an investment bank. It works between investors and borrowers, receiving from one nation and giving it to another. And then the Bank for International Settlements is an international financial organization. It's a bank to the central banks. And so it says here their resources. IMF has notable resources currently valued more than $215 billion. The owners of the World Bank are governments of their 180 member countries having equity shares that were valued $176 billion in 1995. And then the Bank for International Settlements uh, has its revenue uh, in IMF special drawing rights, its balance sheet on March 31st, 2019 was $403 billion. And then it says receivers, both poor and wealthier member countries have freedom to get money 
help from the IMF. Wealthier nations or private individuals don't have any right to get assistance from World Bank as it gives loans to only creditworthy nations. The countries which are poor are more likely to get a loan for the World Bank. Those countries are going to receive funds from IBRD, whose per capita GNP is more than uh, that actually doesn't matter, folks. It goes on to say, Bank for International Settlements works as an emergency funder for nations in trouble. It provides emergency funding through the IMF program. All right, conclusion here is that the IMF and the World Bank play a significant role in development of developing nations. From their help, countries can achieve financial and economic strength to run their country. Bank for International Settlements, located in Switzerland, is a bank for central banks. It is one of the oldest global financial institutions. It operates for the cooperation of central banks and also to ensure global monetary and financial stability. It works under the auspices of international law. All these banks and financial institutions work for maintaining the financial stability of the whole world. Which is better, in your opinion? That's the question that they ask. Not me. I don't like any of it. To be honest with you, I think um, you would know that <laughs> if you're a regular listener of the Dustin Gold Standard. Now, let me just show you. This is uh, from July 9, 2021, so middle of last year. And this is from Reuters.com. And this says right here, Bank for International Settlements, International Monetary Fund, call for global coordination on digital C-Bank currencies. It says in London here, the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank made a joint call on Friday for global cooperation on central bank digital currencies. Around 90% of the world's central banks are currently looking at creating digital versions of their currencies, raising questions about how they will work and operate with each other. Quote, central bank digital currencies offer the opportunity to start with a clean slate. It is crucially important that central banks take the cross-border dimension into account, end quote, said John Cunliffe, uh, chair of the Committee on Payments and Market Infrastructures and Deputy Governor for Financial Stability of the Bank of England, said in a report prepared for the G20 meeting in Italy. Quote, the implications of central bank digital currencies, even if only intended for domestic use, will go beyond borders, end quote, added Tobias Adrian, financial counselor and director of the IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department. The report said that facilitating international payments with CBDCs could be achieved through different degrees of integration and cooperation, ranging from basic compatibility with common standards to the establishment of international payment infrastructures. Interoperability will be crucial, while multilateral collaboration was also needed on the potential macrofinancial consequences CBDCs could cause, it said. All right, so I just wanted to show you. So now you understand the history of the Bank for International Settlements when we talk about it, the International Monetary Fund when we talk about it, and the World Bank when we talk about it. And then each of these countries has central banks, as we went through the other day. I think there's 190 countries with central banks. It's changing all the time, too. So um, there's a lot of moving targets. But anyway, you understand the structure. This is how they control all of these countries. I think there was a only nine countries left that do not have central banks, but they also do have a form of a central bank. If you actually go look that up, we don't need to get into it because it's not that important. But um, 
as you can see here, going back to July uh, 2021, not surprisingly, uh, BIS, IMF, and the World Banks come together and call for the creation of the central bank digital currencies. All right, so now you have a solid understanding of this. You're starting to understand a bigger picture of who our enemy is, who actually uh, controls the economic system, the very heart of the various countries out there. It's all run through this central banking system. So now when we get into the next video, we're going to review the International Monetary Fund Central Bank Digital Currency Panel discussion from October just a couple of months ago, and you're going to see them talk a little bit about programmable money, but it's also very important, just like the World Economic Forum panel discussion we covered, because there's a lot of nuggets that we're going to be able to pull out of this discussion. And so we're getting closer and closer to being able to develop a realistic timeline of when these folks are going to start to roll this stuff out. And then we can start to work that into future solution shows, which I think is very important because at the end of the day, you're obviously learning this stuff. You obviously turn in, tune into uh, the Dust and Gold Standard or the Thomas Paine Podcast or any of the other shows that are affiliated with this network or shows of people that have been guests on this network because you want to try to understand what the hell the future is going to look like, what you should do with your investments today, how long are they safe for, uh, should you be pulling out cash, should you be, I don't know, building a bunker underground to live in. I'm not sure if I'm going to go that far, but I think the more we know, the more we know about our enemy, the more we know about our enemy, the more the plans that we develop, our individual personal family plans we develop, are going to have a better chance at helping us prosper in the future because we will understand the goals that we write down and the steps to get to those goals. Maybe those steps are wrong and it'll save us a lot of headaches in the future, folks. And to be honest with you, after this episode, going through the history of all this stuff, I have a massive headache. I wasn't planning on actually breaking this all down today. I was just going to jump right into International Monetary Fund, CBDC, panel discussion. But I said, you know what? I'm automatically assuming that the audience knows what the Bank for International Settlements is, World Bank is, and the International Monetary Fund is, and I better stop for a moment and do a show breaking that all down. And we put it out at midnight on Friday night so people can listen to that on Saturday because it's something you might have to listen to a couple times or maybe you want to jump on the computer, jump on these websites, poke around, and educate yourself a bit more on it. And as I said, in future episodes, we'll get into you know all the conspiracies and stuff surrounding this. But even with the official narrative, folks, just like I say with Operation Paperclip or with MKUltra or with the Singularity Institute, just with the publicly sourced information coming from the official narrative, is that not bad enough? You could see what happens. A crisis ensues, and boom. The bankers are there to save the day. But if you want to go look at the other timelines, you'll see that a lot of these crises that ensue come from uh, the bankers as well, ladies and gentlemen. The bankers love to be on all sides of everything. That is how you ensure complete and total control. But the money men behind this technocracy are what makes the system 
work, ladies and gentlemen. This is how the technocracy is coming to fruition. And the people behind it, as I suspect, with Howard Scott, the founder of Technocracy Incorporated, Back in the 1920s and 1930s, we found him connected to the guy who is known for starting the Federal Reserve here, our central bank that went into fruition in 1913 under President Woodrow Wilson, was palling around. Howard Scott, the technocrat, was palling around with Frank Vanderlip, who was instrumental in the development of the central bank in the United States, ladies and gentlemen. The bankers are always the boogeyman under the bed they are always the wizard behind the curtain the money the fake money the monopoly money whether in the form of printed fiat currency minted coins or digital tokens it makes the world go round ladies and gentlemen i am dustin gold this is the dustin gold standard thank you for tuning in to pain.tv slash gold the matrix is a computer generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold.